Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one work. They were separated at a later date um, for reasons that we can only speculate. The book of Ezra tells an idealized story of a reconstituted Jerusalem community threatened with obliteration threatened with that obliteration from a controlling empire, from inter-ethnic strife, and from the abuses and excesses of an elite class. The stories here are full of the complexity and the ambiguities that come with life. The timing, we believe, it has to be after 332 B.C., early during the Greek occupation of Israel. So even after they are conquered and and taken off to Babylon with the Babylonian Empire. The Persian Empire then conquers the Babylonians. And as the Persian Empire then dissolves and fades into history, the Greek Empire is on the rise, and now they are occupied by the Greek Empire. So they just cannot seem to get away from occupation and control by other countries. In chapter 1, the author intends there to be a seamless story from Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23, to Ezekiel, to Ezra, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So there's some overlap here to make that seamless move. Isaiah 45, 1 interprets Cyrus's edict as the fulfilled promise of God for restoration of Israel. Ezra looks more to Jeremiah and to the 70 years, Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, and to Jeremiah 29, 10. Cyrus had a policy during his time ruling the Persian Empire of returning the formerly captive peoples to their homeland. This promoted loyalty to him, um, and this is God's providence at hand of a foreign king in the eyes of the Israelites, meaning that God is God of all the world uh, and is in control even of those who don't follow him. God finds a way to make God's will occur. Greater than Babylon's Marduk or Moab's Shemosh, um, the God of Israel is mightier still. There is this one Hebrew universal God, not just a national God located in Jerusalem. In verses 5 through 11, all who desire can go home. Those who are not going should send stuff with those who are going. King Cyrus returns the temple vessels that were carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and they're going, they're being enriched much like they were when they left Egypt in Exodus 12. Moving into chapter two, we have a list of the returnees, those who choose to go home. This parallels Nehemiah chapter seven's list. Um, the book covers the time from 539 to 398 BC. Probably this is a composite list of multiple migrations. 
There are some Persian names among this list. Maybe they are individuals like Paul and Saul. Saul was going by a Greek, um, by going by a Hebrew name and he changes it to a Greek version of that name as he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. So maybe they are simply using some um, Persian names. Maybe they are children of mixed marriages, um, intermarriage between Jews and Persians, so they have mixed ethnicity. We don't know that for sure, but we know that um, Bigvi in verse 2 and um, Raham in verse 2 are Persian names. Verses 61 through 63, some are not able to substantiate their priestly lineage, so they're excluded from the priesthood until that can be determined. And the way they'll do that is they'll cast lots to determine the truth of their ancestral claim. Um, inclusion ha- does have limits, um, especially among the clergy, at least for the Jewish people upon their return here. The, the records are not the last word, however. They're, they will continue to wrestle prayerfully, with the role of these who cannot substantiate what they believe to be their heritage and their place. Um, They believed that God moved in the casting of the lots. That's how they could discern the will of God. In verse 64, 42,360 people are given here. 7,337 servants, 200 singers, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. That's a pretty good entourage of people. Um, By the way, mules and donkeys listed separately here, I had to go look up the difference. Mules are the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse and are usually almost always sterile. Verse 68, immediately upon their arrival... They look to the work that is needed, and they make some spontaneous contributions to accomplish that work. The temple and worship are significant in anchoring the identity of the community. Um, It mentions here the Persian Derek, um, or a minus, your translation might say. It was about 160th of a talent, which is the traditional Jewish rendering of coinage and money. 61,000 gold coins, or drachman, is what it's talking about here. 6,250 pounds of silver, or manas, M-A-N-E-H-S, or three tons of silver. So this is significant contributions. 1,100 pounds of gold, three tons of silver, the equivalent of 61,000 gold coins, and the equivalent of 6,250 silver coins. In chapter 3, even though the work on the temple is not going to begin for more than a year, they already go ahead and restart worship. Nehemiah's walls were kind of the first priority. They needed to get safety so that rebuilding the temple wouldn't be futile. They'd just be raided and have it all be taken away. In verse 3, There is a dread of their neighboring peoples. They are in need of God's protection. They must have more than just the wall. They must have the protection of God. Zerubbabel is their civic leader. Um, Jeshua 
is their religious leader, and they come together to accomplish this. Verses 8 through 13, work begins on the temple. They remember and they honor their religious heritage as they build. The Levites usually begin their priestly service at age 30. Now they've lowered that to the age of 20 because they have a greater need. Celebration and worship accompany all the aspects of the construction. In verse 12, we see that the elders are weeping. This temple is just a poor replacement for the glory of Solomon's temple that he built. But it is something. At once, um, it is a refusal among these older people to welcome the future, as well as a challenge to the new generation that comes here. Much is needed to reach the former community's success. They need to realize that, but you can't um, despise the days of new beginnings. You do what you can at the moment. Verse 13, we have a mingling of joy and sorrow that's so common to our experience of life and to phases of life within our church and within our faith communities. Um, John Wesley said that in heaven, it will be all singing and no sighing. Um, In hell, it will be all wailing and no rejoicing. But here on earth, we have a we are can scarcely discern shouts of joy from the noise of weeping. Let us learn to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. So life here on earth is a mixture of joy and sorrow. We must embrace the tensions and the ambiguities that are our human state of existence. In chapter 4, the attempt to rebuild under Cyrus the Great, who ruled from 539 to 530 BC, probably was paused during the reign of Cambyses, um, who ruled from 530 to 522 BC. Work was reauthorized under Darius the Great, who ruled from 522 to 486. And so in 520, he reauthorizes the building to continue in Jerusalem. The wall fortification probably began under Xerxes, who is also called Ahasuerus in the Bible, who ruled from 486 to 465 and was completed under Artaxerxes, 465 to 424, um, which is under the leadership of Nehemiah. Temples, when temples were built in cities, they signaled the rising stature of that city. So rebuilding the temple would reestablish Jerusalem as a center of finance and government in that empire. Neighboring officials probably had a fear that this shift of imperial attention might also take a shift in finances that had been flowing to their areas. But there's a sense of insecurity and jealousy. They don't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt because it might mean less notoriety for themselves. So first, they they pretend to want to join. And when they are rejected in that, then they oppose and try to derail the rebuilding. There are two accounts based on separate um, histories that are blended together here. Despite the resistance, the people are resolved, and God is faithful and honors their commitment. Their persistence lasts over decades. And that takes us through Ezra chapters 1 through 4.